Hey guys, welcome back to the True Crime Friday podcast. It is my week, so it's going to be a bit longer. It's going to be a bit gruesome. So here's a disclaimer for this episode. This episode will contain mentions of murder, violence, suffocation, grave robbing that some people may find upsetting and or disturbing. And if that is the case, this may not be the episode for you. This is actually more of a light-hearted case than what I normally do, so you might enjoy it, you might not, but there are light-hearted episodes that you can go and check out if you wish. Shockingly, but there are. But anyway, enjoy the episode. Hello. Hello. How is you? Ah, uh, a little rough. Tired. Oh, you're tired. Yeah, just just got myself no sleep. I did it to myself. Ooh. I've got a very swollen hand today. Yes, it looks very nice though. It's great. I love it. But my hand is like where where it gets to my knuckles, like just before my knuckles, on the main base of my hand, it's just like a massive like swollen lump. Oh, so you can't do much. Uh, not really. I can move my fingers, but like you know, like how you can bend, how most people can like bend the wrist completely down. Yeah, I can't do that because like my tattoo goes over the entire base of my hand and goes onto my wrist on my arm, like on the top of my wrist, because it connects with my sleeve. So I can't bend my wrist like at all. Ouch! Uh, but for anyone who doesn't know. I got my hand tattooed yesterday. I got a peony flower, which is like there are the flowers on my sleeve. Uh, I got that on the top of my hand, and I got some dots added onto my knuckles. And yeah, it was not that painful. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Like, you, you I mean, you got it done in a church or something? Yeah, so it's a tattoo studio in Manchester called Sabbath Church Tattoo, and it's. At the back of the church. Well, actually, not the front, like at the altar bit of the church. You know, when I mean, you get to the altar of the church and there's like a, another room next to it. Basically, it's in that room that's next to the altar of the church. And yeah, it's like full blown. Like, there's no. I think there's like. It's a church that's got loads of little offices in it. So, like, in the middle where the aisles would be, that's like a load of offices. And then at the end of it is the altar, how it would normally be. Like, that, nothing about it's changed. And then it's just a tattoo studio there. Yeah, I just thought it was weird that of all places. Yeah. But I mean, this is the UK. There's supermarkets and churches. That's. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I got tattooed in a church yesterday, which was actually pretty good. It was pretty fun. Uh, I was there from like eleven o'clock until three, so I was there for about four hours. So it took like took a break after we'd done the line work and stuff, and we're just in, adjusting the sizes and adding more to it and everything but yeah i got ta- my hand tattooed top of my hand it was not that painful like when she was doing my knuckles i actually didn't feel it i knew she was doing it because of the sound of the machine but i couldn't feel it i was like is she even doing it and i only knew that she did it because she would wipe the excess ink away and that's the only part then when i went oh no she is tattooing me because I, uh. I couldn't feel it like it was I didn't take. I didn't do any numbing cream or numbing spray or painkillers. Like I just, just couldn't feel it. It was, you could feel some of it. Some bits were spicy, but it was like a four out of ten on pain scale. That's probably up there with one of my least painful tattoos. 
Yep. But it looks it looks it looks super sick. So they did a good job. Yeah, my my hand looks really cool now. I just can't really do much with it today. Ah. Yeah, but you don't need it too much when doing this episode, hopefully. No, exactly. I've got everything written up already. And uh, as most people, if you follow us on Instagram at True Crime Fr- True Crime Friday Podcast, uh, you will True Crime Fridays. You will see that I gave a hint in the middle of the week to what this episode could possibly be. And no, and uh, like we got, got we got a comment with a bunch of suggestions. We have already done three of those people that they commented. Oh, so, I didn't see. I didn't see where people had commented. We got one that just basically said, "Oh, is it Peter Tobin? Is it Dennis Nielsen? Is it Bible John?" I was like, "We've already covered." Oh yeah, that's all the ones we've done. Yeah, we've done that one, and then Peter Manuel, who we've not done yet. I don't think we have. Uh, Unless he's the one today. No, he is not. That answer was incorrect. That guess was not right. We are going back into the 1800s for this episode. It is a very famous case in Scotland as well. Actually, it is one of the most famous murder cases. So if I don't know this, I'll look like a clown. So this takes place in Edinburgh. And this is the case of Burke and Hare. Ah, okay, yes. Yes. If you're from Scotland, you're most likely, as Matt's reaction there, you definitely should know this case, because it is very, very fucking famous in Scotland. Uh, yes. Well, it's... There's a lot of, like, from what I've seen, there's, like, pubs named after Birkenhair, there's strip clubs named after Birkenhair, there's loads of weird shit associated with Birkenhair. And, um, obviously, if, like, in the museums in... Especially when it comes to anatomy in uh, Edinburgh, from what I've found out from my research, they have things from Burke and Hare on display as part of the museum. Yeah, I know this case is famous for being in Scotland, but people who did it aren't from here. Yeah, the people who did it, Burke and Hare themselves, no. are from Ireland, but they came over to Scotland, and all the crimes take place in Edinburgh. So. Um, but no, to be fair though, um, so, so I, um, this, may, this, may, this might, may, might sound bad, but from what I can tell and from what I can remember from reading that what they did also had some positive effect. I know that sounds horrible, but in terms of medical it had, reasons. It had a positive effect in terms of they supplied things for people to learn the human anatomy. Yes. Yes, because... Um, Daniel Sloss, he talks about it. Yeah. Um, if you know who okay, he doesn't know Daniel Sloss. He's one of he's one of the funniest comedians. He's my favorite comedian. I've seen him live twice. Have <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, Daniel Sloss talks about it on I think it's Conan O'Brien or something. Yeah, most likely. Cause he, cause, uh, yeah. he he went over and talked about it there. So if you want to watch that, I just uh, to get a more funnier aspect or side out of it because he explains other things as well. In that one as well, because I think Conan O'Brien, it's always the Scottish comedians, they, or, or Scottish people, they ask, what's some like phrases? And I swear to that same skit he tells about Gardy Lou, which is the thing in obviously, I think around about that time as well in Edinburgh, when people would just throw buckets of piss and shit, obviously, out of their window because there's no way for it to go. So that's why the term, that's why it's the term shit faced is a thing. Because people get shit on their face if they didn't, because they were too drunk and didn't realise, oh shit, it's the time we're, we're throwing out their shit out of the window. So you'd get shit on your face when you were drunk. You were shit-faced. 
Yeah. Hey, we are smart people. But yeah, so I'm interested in this because I know to some extent, oh, ish. No, I'm not gonna say I know everything, but I know a decent amount of what happened. So yeah. I can't believe I didn't think this was the one you'd cover. I just don't think about going that far back. Yeah. So it, we are going very far back. We're going back to at least 1828 with this, and to the point where, obviously, with every episode, we upload a picture of the criminal that we're talking about on like the artwork for the thumbnail and everything uh there's no pit there are no no actual photographs of Birkin hair only drawings from the trial there are no pictures in the slightest just actual drawings from the trial pictures were a thing back at this time like we obviously all know this from pictures that we've seen before because cameras were invented at this point in time in history but there are only pictures from the trial that someone drew. So that will be the cover picture for today. Uh, so that's how far back we're going. But yeah, they committed a, they committed 16 murders over a period of 10 months in 1828 in Edinburgh, Scotland. So we're going to go into a bit of like why they did what they did there's not really a justification for it but there is an actual reasoning for why they did what they did because this all began basically because a lot the being a doctor was a very big high demand at this point in time a lot of people were being a doctor was a very important thing because a lot of people really need doc they needed really needed doctors so a lot of because it was a job that was very high in demand. A lot of people were wanting to be trained. They wanted to train to become a doctor because it was a job with good money and stable money as well. And during this period of time, to learn the human anatomy, a lot, uh, Scottish law required corpses for medical research, but they should only come from those who died in prison suicide victims or from foundlings and orphans basically so basically people who didn't really have anyone who cared or would really bother if their bodies were used for research uh the shortage of the shortage of corpses led to an increase in body snatching or grave robbing robbing by what were known as resurrection men do people still do that what grave robbing yeah probably I was a, I mean, I, if I just thought if people are people really gonna be grave robbing now? Surely that's just a thing that's died in the past. Well, Why people, would you grave rob well, now? Because p- sometimes people do put prized possessions or valuables in the coffin with the body to be buried yeah, with but, them. So a lot of people try and do it just to see if there's anything that they could sell. Yeah, but like, but I don't think, it's think, a, it's think about a graveyard, right? And how many folk are in there? How the fuck are you going to know which one has the prize possessions? You're going to be digging them all up and then realise you wasted your time, which is horrible to do that anyway. But that's just a reminder, I guess. Don't get buried with possessions because some asshole might have the indecency to bury you up. Yeah, yeah, no fair. Yeah. I dig it's you up, w- not bury you up. Yeah, dig you up. Yeah, it's weird. Um, so because the demand was so high for doctors around this time, universities were upping their fees because there were so many people who wanted to learn about the medical field and work in it because it was one of the highest jobs going at this point in time. But because in the schools they used corpses to teach about anatomy, they would pay people if they brought in a body. 
And that's why grave robbing became really high because resurrection men would commit this... Well, not really a crime. It wasn't really a crime, actually, at this point. And they would always get fresher bodies that had been recently buried and they would normally get more money in the winter compared with the summer because the bodies didn't decompose as quickly in the winter. So this was very popular during colder seasons. And the situation was confused by the legal position. Like I said, it wasn't necessarily a crime. Really? It, obviously it's a crime now. But... Disturbing a grave, uh, disturbing a grave was a criminal offence, as was take as it was the taking of property from the deceased. But stealing the body itself wasn't a criminal offence, as it did not legally belong to anyone. So that's why resurrection men basically found a loophole in this and started doing this. So yeah, like I said earlier, the price per corpse changed depending on the season. It was £8 in the summer and it was £10 in the winter, which is a lot of money at this point in time. By the 1820s, the residents of Edinburgh had taken to the streets to protest at the increase in grave robbing because obviously a lot of family members were not happy that people were taking their family that they have recently buried. Like they're in mourning. And during this period of time as well, the mourning period was a massive, massive thing. Like a lot of people would be wearing black and in mourning for at least a year. And it would kind of go around like that. So imagine you're, you're doing your mourning period, you're about to be, be like this for a whole year, where you're doing this tradition, and someone basically just takes the person that you've just buried. You're not going to be happy. No, you won't. Especially if, especially if you're going, if you're going back to visit your relative at the graveyard, and then realize, oh shit, they're not there anymore. So or even see it happening. Yeah. So one thing you'll notice if you go to Edinburgh and you go to any of the graveyards, or you actually see any grave sites, because one thing that's obviously a huge thing, graveyards have been around for centuries. So, but and things have been built over graveyards. They don't move the bodies, I want to put this out there. They don't move the bodies when they build over grave sites. They kind of just keep them there. Unless they're digging particularly big holes. So, you might notice a few things. Such as, um, I found out this one thing. Uh, you know, if you go into a park and there are, and the grass is a lot higher and it's got wooden, it's got like concrete slabs at the side of it down a pathway yeah that's because there's bodies underneath that grass oh it's there's like concrete slabs so you know when you're walking into a park and you're walking down the path and the grass is on either side and the grass is a bit higher but against the side of where the grass is there's like concrete slabs like as a wall thing or high walls in parks i'm trying to i'm trying to see if i can get an image i'm confused so you know if you walk into like some not it's not every park but in um, some, if it's got like, a, if where the grass is, it's higher, as if like a, hill, a bit hilly, but on the side of the grass, it's a very large, it's a, it's a wall, like a wall. Uh-huh. Yeah, if it's like, if it's a wall, not a particularly high wall, but if it's a wall against the side of the grass and the grass is quite elevated above the ground compared to the, the path that you're walking on, that means that there's possibility of bodies being underneath there and that it used to be a gravesite. Oh, yeah. I think I kind of get it, but when you just say when one part, when one side's elevated, I'm fucking living in Scotland. It's yeah. not a flat fucking country. I know England is, but come on now. <laughs> That's why I'm confused. You, 
I was like, I've gone to many a park and the grass is raised at one side. Oh, but that's yeah. just because it's raised because the ground's not flat. Yeah, do you want to know? Uh, maybe. So, so, so one thing in Edinburgh as well, um, I saw this as well about this particular period of time. Um, a lot of the massive hill sites or areas where it's a bit more park-based in Edinburgh, there's, like, um, there's parts where there's big, bigger hill sites. Um, that's because they basically used to dig massive holes to put plague bodies in. What? Yeah. Oh, did they? Yeah. Interesting. So, obviously people were getting pissed off about their family members being taken from their graves. So, to avoid corpses being taken, uh, bereaved families used several techniques in order to deter the thieves. Guards were hired to watch the graves and watchtowers were built in several cemeteries. So, if you go into a cemetery... And there's a tower. Not most of the time, there's a tower. It's probably deteriorated over the years, but there's normally a tower in a grave in a graveyard. That was a watchtower that guards used to be in overnight to make sure to keep an eye on, watch watchful eye out for grave robbers. So that's what that was there for. And some families hired a large stone slab that would be placed over a grave for a short period of time until the body had begun to decay past the point of being useful for anatomist. So when you walk into some grave sites, probably in Edinburgh, especially because this was very popular in Edinburgh at the time, if you see like a stone slab over a grave site, that's probably why. Also, another one, uh, other families used a mort safe, which was an iron cage that surrounded the coffin. So you know when you go into some grave sites and you see like an iron cage over the grave site and you're like, what the fuck is that for? That's what that was for. Iron cage over the grave. Yeah, so some great some some cemeteries you'll walk in and you see really really old graves from the eighteen hundreds. They'll have an iron. Some of them will have like an iron cage on top of it, and I've seen that in some cemeteries in in Manchester as well. Um, I've never seen this anywhere here. I've seen it before, and it I've always gone, "What the fuck is that for?" And a lot of families were really superstitious about grave robbers, so they used to get iron cages put over the graves so robbers couldn't get access. Oh, I mean, I guess you could, well, remove them now, but I've just never seen this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a huge thing. Some of it's not as around, not around as much anymore, mostly because, yeah, some gravesites, some cemeteries were changed into streets. So a lot of the gravestones got taken away. So the iron cages were taken away, but some were still there. So it, it might not be, More- a, you might not see them as much, but they are there. Oh, Mort safe or a mort cage. Yeah. They don't look. Ah, oh, they're. Oh, there's some in Perthshire, but I've never been in a gravesite in, in Perth. Why the. Yeah. Why would I be? But no, they don't look particularly nice. Well, in today's, they don't. Um, oh, there's a watchtower in Dalkeith. Yeah. Okay. Yes, wait, what the. Ah, oh, there's. Okay, I'm seeing Iron Coffin once outside a village in Edinburgh. Yes. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on, hang on. There we go. Oh, here we go. Surviving examples. Mort safe. So, wait, here we go. Uh, one can be found in a slightly rusted state right at the door outside of the Skeen Parish Church in the cur- uh, Curtain of Skeen. Love action. Not been to the fucking Skeen Parish Church, but apparently there is one. Um, There's one in Towie, and there's one west of Alford. Uh, Alford, sorry. And uh, Towie, okay. Well, there's ones near me. I have just found out. So, if I want to, for some reason, go to Curtain... Kirk's in a skein, which I have been. 
and just right outside the door of the parish church. Hmm. Maybe I have seen it in passing and it's happened. But there's one near me, so I'll take that back. Okay, there is. So yeah, there you go, a little bit of history for you. <sighs> so the high levels of vigilance from the public and the techniques used to deter the grave robbers led to what the historian Ruth Richardson describes as a growing atmosphere of crisis among anatomists because of the shortest the shortage of corpses. So doctors and teachers at the universities were basically panicking because they couldn't. They get there was such a high demand of people wanting to go to the universities to learn about anatomy, but they couldn't because they didn't have the bodies to do it. Uh, the, the historian Tim Marshall considers the situation meant Birkenhead took grave robbing to its loc- logical conclusion. Instead of digging up the dead, they accepted lucrative. Uh, intensives to destroy the living that's how some people described it because yeah so we're going to go into a little bit of backstory there's not too much on the backstory of burke and hare there's more backstory on burke and less on hare obviously so william burke was born in 1792 in yearny county tyrone ireland what he was one of two sons to middle class parents burke along with his brother constantine had a comfortable upbringing and both joined the British Army as teenagers. Burke served in the Donegal uh, Militia until he met and married a woman from country from County Mayo, where they later settled. The marriage was short-lived, though. In 1818, after an argument with his father-in-law over land ownership, Burke deserted his wife and family, and he moved to Scotland and became a labourer, and he began working on the Union Canal. He settled in a small village of Madison near Falkirk and set up home with a woman named Helen, uh, named Helen McDougall, who he nicknamed Melly. And she later became his second wife, despite him already being married. But back in those days, it didn't really matter if a guy was married to more than one woman. It's actually weirdly common. After a few years, and when the works on the canal were finished, the couple moved to Tanner's Close in Edinburgh in November 1827. They became hawkers, selling second-hand clothes to impoverished locals. Burke then became a cobbler, a trade in which he experienced some success, earning upwards to £1 a week, which is standard living at that point in time. He became no. He became locally known locally as an industrious and good-humoured man who often entertained his clients by singing and dancing for them on their doorsteps while playing his trade. Although raised in a Roman in, as a Roman Catholic, Burke became a regular worshipper at Presbyterian religious meetings held in the Grass Market. He was uh, seldom seen without a Bible, so yeah, he kind of ditched his belief as a Roman Catholic, which. Bear in mind he's moving over to Scotland and during this period of time Protestant was pretty much the ruler of in terms of religion. So the complete they're basically the rivals. So William Hare was pro was probably born in County in County Armagh. I can't pronounce proper Irish counties, I'm so sorry. Uh County London Derry or Newry. His age and year year of birth are pretty much unknown. When he was arrested in 1828, he gave his age as 21, but one source states that he was born between 1792 and 1804. So not, no one really knows. Information on his earlier life is scant, although it's possible that he worked in Ireland as an 
agricultural labourer before travelling to Scotland. He worked on the Union on the Union Canal as well for seven years before moving to Edinburgh in the mid eighteen twenties, where he worked as a coalsman with Coleman's assistant. He lodged at Tanner's Close in the house of a man named Logue and his wife Margaret Loud in the nearby Westport area of the town. When Logue died in eighteen twenty six, Hare may have married Margaret. There's not hundred percent confirmation, but they did stick together after this. Based on the uncontemporary accounts, Brian Bailey in his History of the Murders describes Hare as illiterate and uncouth, a lean, quarrelsome, violent, admirable character with scars from old wounds about his head and brow. Bailey describes Margaret, who was an Irish immigrant, as a hard-featured and debauched uh, Viagro. No idea. In 1827, Burke and McDougall went to Pennycook in... You're gonna you're gonna be way better with this shit than me. <laughs> in Midlothian, to work on the harvest where they met her. The men became very good friends very quickly. When Burke and McDougall returned to Edinburgh, they moved into Hare's Tanner's close lodging house, where the two couples soon acquired a reputation for hard drinking and boisterous behaviour. Basically, they became annoying arseholes. <laughs> On the 29th of November 1827, Donald, a lodger in Hare's house, died of dropsy shortly before receiving a quarterly army pension while owing £4 of back rent uh, to Hare. After Hare demoaned his financial loss to Burke, the pair decided to sell Donald's body to one of the local autonomists. A carpenter provided a coffin for a burial which was to be paid for by the local parish. After he left, the pair opened the coffin, removed the body, which they hid under the bed, filled the coffin with bark from a local tanners, and resealed it. After dark on the day the coffin on the day the coffin was removed for burial, they took the corpse to Edinburgh University, where they looked for a purchaser. According to Burke's later testimony, they asked for directions to Professor Munro, but a student sent them to Doctor Knox's premises in Surgeon Square. Although the men dealt with juniors when discussing the possibility of selling the body, it was Knox who arrived to fix the price at £7. Hare received £4 while Burke took the rebalance of 6 The larger share was to cover the loss of Donald's unpaid rent. According to Burke's official confession, as he and Hare left the university, one of Knox's assistants told them that the anatomist would be glad to see them again when they, when they had another to dispose of. Bear in mind, for the entirety of this, Dr. Knox claims that he didn't know what they were doing, but they were coming in with that many bodies. It was barely, it was clear that he... I mean, he, they're he, sussy boys, he, come on. He had to have known something was going on, but I don't think he cared because I think he was too busy thinking, I'm getting my stuff for research, I'm not really asked. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, at that time when that sort of stuff's not easy to come by, well, for one, you have to wait until people die the fact is he was getting about an influx of people coming in that's a plus and a win-win for him so when you know win-wins happen you do get that stuff like, oh, i don't fucking care if, uh, if i'm benefiting from this oh well deal with the repercussions later but he, he you know when the normal amount of like i guess bodies were showing up surely he got suspicious and didn't think well what's happening here well, yeah, exactly. 
So Dr. Robert Knox was an, uh, was an anatomist who qualified as a doctor in 1814. After contracting smallpox as a child, he was blind in one eye and badly disfigured. He undertook service as an army physician at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, followed by a posting in England and during the Cape Frontier War in Southern Africa. He eventually settled in his hometown of Edinburgh in 1820. In 1825, he became a fellow in the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, where he lectured in, in anatomy. He undertook dissections twice a day, and his advertising promised a full demonstration on fresh anatomical subjects as part of every course of lectures he delivered. He stated that his lessons drew over 400 pupils. Claire Taylor, his biographer in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, observes that he built up a a formidable reputation as a teacher and lecturer and almost single-handedly raised the profile of of the study of anatomy in Britain. Another biographer, Isabel Ray, considers that without Knox, the study of anatomy in Britain might not have progressed as it did. So like I said, there were some benefits to what they did. It's the way that they do it that was very inhumane. It's it's not right. Taking bodies of people um, from families unaware. But if you can use that to progress in medical advances to, obviously, which have benefited us in today's um just society then you know uh, we're grateful for many things in the past uh but there's also the way that stuff had been done for us to get these benefits now is a little eh. you know what i mean it's like mm. yeah like it's, it's just very like there's yeah like, like there is benefits to this like yeah he drew in over 400 pupils so he's paying Birkenhead probably you you're basically based on like seven to ten pounds per body and he's drawing in over 400 pupils who are paying god knows probably a similar price or probably a bit less yeah. for these lessons yeah. so it is he's basically getting his money's worth with this shit he is man's in riches So there is no agree- there were there's no agreement as to the order in which the murders took place, apparently. Because it's very like jumbled in a way, because you're going off they're going off one person's confession, technically. So no one can know the actual accuracy of it. And this was taking place over a year, there's a massive chance and also they were pissed a lot of the time. I mean hey, it's Scottish people, you know? Um were getting pissed and if they're Irish, so you know they come over. They're drunks as well. Drunks meet other drunks, you yeah, know. Yeah. When you mingle with the Scottish folk, you get pissed out your mind. We know how to drink. We drink better than the fucking English. On par with the Irish. I think the Irish probably outdrink us a tiny bit. Bear in mind, bear in mind the main drink, especially at this point in history, in both Scotland and Ireland, is whiskey. Yes. So they're not. Uh, wait, wait. Hang on. Um, it, it, they won't. They won't have had it at that time. No, but, no. It's what, the, what Scotland? Yeah. No, no. no I'm meaning. Um, <laughs> I'm meaning around about that time. Actually, what what year is this? You're talking about 1820, 1828. Oh well. Oh okay. Ah, oh, it's 1880. Yeah, Buckfast isn't a thing. 
Yeah, uh, no, they can't get on the bucky. Uh, are, bucky's not a thing. This is whiskey. This is pure whiskey. Whiskey around this point in time. I mean, it is stated in like all of this that they are drinking whiskey. Love a dram is what they would say. A wee dram of whiskey. Yeah, so like, I remember a couple of, a few years ago, I was in. We're in this like really old pub in Manchester. We're in this really old pub in Manchester with my with my friend James and. um I was only having like a couple of pints, but then he ended up chatting to this old guy. He was a bit creepy, in my opinion. He was a bit fucking creepy. He was making a few comments at me that made me want to punch him in the head. But uh, he said to James, "Oh, do you want a dram?" He was like a bit. He was Scottish as well, so he was like, "Do you want a dram and a pint?" And then James was like, "Yeah, sure." James doesn't drink whiskey. I knew what a dram meant. He didn't. So. It come, it arrives. James doesn't know what to do because he doesn't know what he's been given. He thinks that you put the two together, which you don't. So he, I know you don't. You better do that, Nana. So he, he had the whiskey and the pint together, and he pulls a really disgusted face, and he comes up to me. He goes, "That was fucking vile. What the hell was that?" And I was like, "You just, you just put whiskey in a pint and next it." Uh, and he went. Yeah. He was like, "This is what you, you wanted me to do, right?" And I went, "You just." He was like, "Wait, that was whiskey." And I was like, "That well, yeah." And I was like, "I was like, I, I didn't know it was gonna be whiskey." I was like, "Well, that's what a dram means." He went, "What's the fucking dram?" I was like, "Well, that's just it's, 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 it's whiskey. It's how it's what they say whiskey is in Scotland. You fucking moron." And he went, "I didn't know that." I was like. Oh, what? So you just accepted a random thing without knowing what exactly it means from a random guy you've met in a pub for five minutes? And he went, "Yeah." I was like, "Well, that's fucking stupid, isn't it?" Aye. Well, take if he ever gets a chance, come up to Scotland and actually do it the proper way, so his uh, mind isn't because he's probably put off whiskey now, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, I don't drink, as we know, but uh, come up here, visit a distillery. Or somewhere and actually properly taste whiskey by some people who know what they're doing, and then he might change his mind. So, yeah, maybe, maybe I like whiskey anyway, but that's just, that's just me. So Burke made two confessions but gave different sequences for the murders in each statement. The first was an official one given on the third of January, eighteen twenty-nine, to the sheriff constable. Uh, the procurator, fiscal, and the assistant sheriff, sheriff clerk. The second was in the form of an interview with the Edinburgh uh, Current that was published on the 7th of February 1829. These, inter- these in turn differed from the order in the order given in Hare's statement, although the pair were agreed on many of the points of the murders. So that's how they managed to kind of figure out when certain things happened based on the accuracy on both ends. So they both both matched up. They were like, okay, so this is clearly true. But the first couple, they kind of differ. So most sources agree that the, that the pair's first, first victim was a man named Joseph Miller. Joseph had developed a fever and become delirious. Hare and his wife were concerned that having a potentially infectious lodger would be bad for business. Hare again turned to Burke, and after providing their victim with whiskey, Hare suffocated Joseph while Burke lay across the upper torso to restrict movement. 
They again, they took the corpse to Dr. Knox, who this time paid £10 for the body. This form of murder would eventually be called burking because this was the method that they did every single time and it was used that many times it developed a nickname. The order of the next two victims is rather unclear. Historians put the sequence as Abigail Simpson being their next victim followed by an English male lodger from Cheshire. The unnamed Englishman was a travelling seller of matches and tinder who fell ill with Jordis at Hare's lodging house. As with Joseph, Hare was concerned with the effect this illness might have on his business and he and Burke employed the same method of murder that they had had with Miller. Hare suffocating their victim with, while Burke lay over the body to stop movement and noise. Simpson was a pensioner who lived in the nearby village of Gilmerton and visited Edinburgh to supplement her pension by selling salt. On the 12th February 1828, the only exact date Burke quoted in his confession, by the way, she was invited into Hare's house and piled with enough alcohol to ensure she was not too drunk to return home. After murdering her, Burke and Hare placed the body in a tea chest and sold it to Knox. They received £10 for each body and Burke's confession uh, records of Simpson's body that Dr Knox approved of it being so fresh but he did not ask any questions. He definitely knew. He 100% knew what they were doing. Like, he's just approving of the freshness of the body but then he's just going, no, he's just not asking any fucking questions. Like, he 110% knew what was going on. In either February or March of that year, an old woman was invited into the house by Margaret Hare. This is another thing as well. The wives claim that they had no idea what was going on. I call bullshit. So Margaret... uh, So Margaret Hare invited an old woman into the house she margaret gave her enough whiskey to fall asleep and when Hare returned that afternoon he covered the sleeping woman's mouth and nose with the mattress cover and left her she was dead by nightfall and burke joined Hare to transport her body to knox who paid another 10 pounds margaret 100 percent was in on it there there's no argument on this i 100 percent think that both wives were in on the murders Probably. So Burke met two women in early April, Mary Patterson and Janet Brown, in the Canongate area of Edinburgh. He bought the two women alcohol for inviting them back to his lodging for breakfast. The three left the tavern with two bottles of whiskey and went instead to his brother Constantine's house. After his brother left for work, Burke and the women finished the whiskey and Patterson fell asleep at the table. Burke and Brown continued talking but were interrupted by McDougal who accused them from, of having an affair. An argument broke out between Burke and McDougal during which he threw a glass at her, cutting her over the eye. Brown stated that she did not know Burke was married and left. McDougal also left and went to fetch Hare and his wife. They arrived shortly afterwards and the two men locked their wives out of the room then murdered Patterson in her sleep. Yeah, they definitely knew. That afternoon, the pair took the body to Knox in a tea chest while McDougal kept Patterson's skirt and petticoats. They were paid £8 for her body, which was still warm when they delivered it. Like, the wives kept the victim's skirt 
an outfit, which is very Rose West, because Rose West did that shit. Yeah, there's always got to be the ones that keep something is some a possession reminder. I don't know. I don't get why people keep stuff. I don't get it. In that context, yeah, it's normal to keep stuff from your deceased family members that passed away, the items, they held clothes. But when they're dead and you're keeping, like, that sort of stuff's a little weird, in in my opinion. Oh, yeah, definitely. Ferguson, one of Knox's assistants, asked where they had obtained the body and he thought, because he thought he recognised her. Burke explained that the girl had drunken herself to death and they had purchased her from an old woman in the cannon game. Knox was delighted with the body and stored it in whiskey for three months before dissecting it. Don't know what the benefits of that is. If anyone knows, then please tell me. When Brown got home from the lodging house, her madam demanded that she return to the lodging house and and bring back Patterson safely and told her to take a servant with her for extra protection. When she arrived at the lodging house, she told the servant to go back home because she could handle it. Which... The servant went back, and the madam then told the servant to go back for both girls because she was like, why the fuck would you leave her there? Go back and get her. Don't listen to her. Listen to me. Go back and get both of them. But the lodging house, Brown was told that Mary had left for Glasgow with a travelling salesman. This is the same as Fred and Rose West, in a way, because I remember with that situation when they had murdered one of their victims... And the family went round to Fred and Rose's to ask where this girl was and if she was staying in their lodgings. Rose said no, she'd gone off with some random guy whilst keeping all of her clothing. Yeah. At some point in the early to mid 18... At some point in early to mid 1828, a Mrs. Haldane, whom Burke described as a stout old woman, lodged at Hare's home. After she she became drunk, she fell asleep in the stable. She was smothered and then sold to Knox. Several months later, Haldane's daughter also lodged at Hare's house. She and Burke drank together heavily and he killed her without without, um, Hare's assistance. Her body was put into a tea chest and taken to Knox, where Burke was paid £8 for the whole thing. So this is, like, sometimes you do notice this. They do the murders together, but sometimes they do them apart and just don't tell the other person that they've done it, just to get the extra money. So this start, this whole thing started off as, we don't want this, this will be bad for business if this person is ill in our house. No one's going to want to stay here if they're ill, because like, people will be afraid of contracting this illness. And then it clearly just became something that they enjoyed, because they just thought about the money. The next murder occurred in May 1828 when an old woman joined the house as a lodger. One evening while she was drunk, Burke smothered her. Hare was not present in the house at the time. Her body was sold to Knox for £10. Then came the murder of Effie, a cinder gatherer who scanned through bins and rubbish tips to sell her findings. Effie was known to Burke and had previously sold him scraps of leather for his cobbing business. Burke tempted her... Uh, in, into the table with whiskey and um, when she was drunk enough he and Hare killed her. Knox gave £10 for her body as well. Another victim was found by Burke too drunk to stand. She was being helped by a local constable back to her lodgings when Burke offered to take her there himself. The policeman was getting a bit sick of this lady so he gave her over and Burke took her back to Hare's house where she was killed and her body was sold to Knox for another £10. 
Burke and Hare murder two lodgers in June, an old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson, as they, as Burke recalled in his confession. While the boy sat by the fire in the kitchen, his grandmother was murdered in the bedroom by the usual method of burking. So this grandson was deaf. Uh, so he couldn't hear what was going on in the next room. But uh, the wives were basically keeping an eye on him to make sure he wouldn't go in the other room to see what was going on. Yeah. Burke and Hare then picked up the boy and carried him into the same room where he was also killed. Burke later said that this was the murder that disturbed him the most, as he was haunted by his recollection of the boy's expression as he was being murdered and as he realised what was going on and what was about to happen. Because obviously he's just taken into the same room. He has witnessed, he's just been able to see that his grandmother is laid dead and he realises what's about to happen to him as well. The tea chest that was usually used by the duo to transport the bodies was found to be too small, so the bodies were forced into a herring barrel and taken to the Surgeon's Square, where they got £8 each for the bodies. According to Burke's confession, the barrel was loaded onto a car, which Hare's horse refused to pull further than the grass market. Hare called a porter with a handcart to help him transport the container. Once back in Tanner's close, Hare took his anger out on the horse by shooting it in by shooting it dead in the yard. On the 24th of June, Burke and McDougall went to Falkirk to visit her father. Burke knew that Hare was short of cash and had even pawned some of his clothes. When they both returned, they found out that Hare was wearing new clothes and had surplus money. After he was asked, Hare denied that he had sold another body, but Burke checked with Knox, who confirmed that Hare had sold a woman's body for £8. It led to an argument between the two men and it resulted into a physical fight between the two of them. Burke and his wife moved into the home of his cousin, John Brogan, two streets away from Tanner's close after this. But the issues between the two of them didn't exast- didn't really last too long. Because I think at this point they became a bit addicted to the fact that they could get easy money from doing this. Yes. In late September or early October, Hare was visiting Burke when Mrs. Osler, a washerwoman, came to the property to do the laundry. The men got her drunk and killed her. Her body was with Knox that afternoon, for which the men received £8. A week or two later, one of McDougall's relatives, Anne McDougall, was visiting from Falkirk. After a few di- and after just a few days, the two men killed her by their usual technique and received £10 for her body. So now they're getting a bit too close to home. Burke later claimed that about this time, Hare's wife suggested killing Helen McDougall on the grounds that they could not trust her as she was a Scotch as she was a Scottish woman. But obviously, Hare, uh, sorry, Burke refused to kill his wife. Yes, I mean, what? So, I mean, if he stooped to that level of actually killing his wife, that's dark and grim. Yeah, he didn't want to kill his wife, so he was like, fuck no. Burke and Hare's next victim was a familiar face in the streets of Edinburgh. His name was his name was James Wilson, or Jamie Wilson. It was an 18-year-old man with a limp caused by deformed feet. He was mentally disabled, and according to Alana Knight in her History of the Murders, was inoffensive, and he was known locally as Daft Jamie. Wilson lived on the streets and supported himself by begging and helping out at the markets and entertaining the children whilst their parents were busy. 
And a lot of people actually liked him, despite obviously taking the piss out of him a lot of the time. But people were like, he's not doing any harm, he's keeping the kids busy, and he's helping out, let him be. Uh, so, in November, Hare lured uh, Wilson to his lodgings with the promise of whiskey and sent his wife to fetch Burke. But the thing is, Jamie Wilson didn't actually really drink. He was he was more um, on the drugs level of things. Ah. But he didn't really drink. So, they couldn't... Their usual method would be a bit more of a struggle. And also, this guy was a fairly big guy. The two, murders led Will- the two murderers led Wilson into a bedroom, the door of which Margaret locked before pushing the key under the door. So yeah, Margaret 100% knew what the fuck was going on. As Wilson did not like whiskey, he was not drunk unlike the previous victims. He was also strong and fought back against the two attackers, but was overpowered and killed in the normal way. His body was then stripped and his few possessions stolen. Burke sent a sn- uh, kept a snuff box and hair a snuff spoon. That was his, uh, he didn't like drinking, he preferred the snuff. When his body was examined the following day by Knox and his students, several of them recognised it to be Jamie Wilson because he was very much known in Edinburgh. But Knox denied that it could be anyone the students knew. When word started circulating that Wilson was missing, Knox dissected the body ahead of the others that were being held in storage. The head and feet were removed before the main, before the main dissection. So, yeah, Knox knew what they were doing but obviously denied it but he knew the final victim killed on the 31st of october 1828 was margaret doherty a middle-aged irish woman burke lured her into the brogan lodging house by claiming that his mother was also a doherty from the same area of ireland and the began and the pair began drinking at one point burke left doherty in the company of mcdougall while he went out to buy more whiskey but actually he went to go and get hair Two of the lodgers, Anne and James Gray, were an inconvenience to both of them, so they paid them to stay at Hare's lodging for the night instead of, obviously, the one that they were currently staying at, claiming that Doherty was a relative and they wanted to have a bit more of, like, family time with her. The drinking continued until the into the evening, by which time Margaret had joined in. At around 9pm, the Greys returned briefly to collect some clothing for their children and saw Burke, Hare, their wives and Doherty all drunk, singing and dancing. Although Burke and Hare came to blows at some point in the evening, they murdered Doherty and put her in a pile of straw at the end of the bed. The next day, the Greys returned and Anne became suspicious when Burke would not let her approach the bed where she had left her stockings. When they were left alone in the house in the early evening, the Greys searched the straw and found Doherty's body, showing blood and saliva on her face. On the way to alert the police, they ran into McDougall, who tried to bribe them with an offer of £10 a week, but they refused. While the, I don't feel like, I also feel like they wouldn't have given them £10 a week to keep quiet because they were only getting £10 per body and they were still pretty fucking skint at this point in time. Like, they weren't rich from this. It was just giving them a stable income to get by. So they would 100% would have killed them. Yeah. While the Grace reported the murder to the police, Burke and Hare removed the body and took it to Knox's surgery. The police search located Doherty's bloodstained clothing hidden under the bed. When questioned, Burke and, Burke and his wife claimed that Doherty had left the house but gave different times for when she left. This raised enough suspicion for the police to take them in for questioning. 
Earlier the following morning, the police went to Knox's dissecting rooms where they found her body. James identified her as the woman he had seen with Bergen hair. Hare and his wife were arrested that day, as was Brogan, uh, all denied any knowledge of the events. They arrested James Brogan because they were like, he was obviously part, he partially reported them, so they were kind of like, we need to take you in because you might also have helped out with this shit and just trying to get those two arrested for something you've done. In total, 16 people were murdered by Birkin Hare over this course of less than a year. On the 3rd of November 1828, a warrant was issued for the detention of Burke, Hare and their wives. Brogan was released without further action. The four suspects were kept apart and statements taken. These conflicted with the initial answers given on the day of their arrests. After Alexandra Black, a police surgeon, examined Doherty's body, two forensic specialists were appointed, Robert Christensen and William Newbigging. They reported that it was, pro- it was probable the victim had been murdered by suffocation, but according to them, this could not be medically proven. Obviously, in this day and age, in the present day, it can be medically proven if someone has been suffocated. But yes. back then, they didn't know how to discover this. On the basis of the report from the two doctors, the Burks and Hares were charged with murder. As part of his investigation, Christensen interviewed Knox, who asserted that Burke and Hare had watched poor, had watched poor lodging houses in Edinburgh and purchased bodies for anyone claimed them for burial. Christensen thought Knox was a deficient in principle and heart, but did not think he had broken the law. Although the police were sure a murder had taken place and that at least one of the four was guilty, they were uncertain whether they could secure a conviction. Police also suspected that there had been other murders committed, but the lack of bodies hampered this line of inquiry. As news of the possibility of other murders came to the public's attention, newspapers began to publish lurid and inaccurate stories of the crimes. Uh, Speculative reports led members of the public to assume that all missing people had been victims. Janet Brown went to the police and identified her friend Mary Patterson's clothing, while a local baker informed them that Jamie Wilson's trousers were being worn by Burke's nephew. On the 19th of November, a warrant for the murder of Jamie Wilson was made against the four suspects. Sir William Ray, the Lord Advocate, followed a regular technique. He focused on one individual to extract a confession on which the others could be convicted. Hare was chosen and on the 1st of December he was offered immunity from prosecution if he turned King's evidence and provided the full details of the murder of Doherty and any other because he could not be brought to testify against his wife. She was also exempt against prosecution. Hare made a full confession of all the deaths and Ray decided sufficient evidence existed to secure a prosecution. On the 4th of December, formal charges were laid against Burke and McDougall for the murders of Mary Patterson, James Wilson and Mrs Doherty. Knox faced no charges for the murders because Burke's statement to the police exonerated the surgeon. So Burke did not mention Knox in the confessions. Oh. Burke basically protected Knox because he didn't think like to mention that Knox knew because realistically in Burke and Hare's mindset they never told Knox what they were doing so in their heads they could probably just think oh really he he didn't know he never asked anything yeah so they're not going to know if Knox actually knew or not 
So they're not going to mention it. And we're and we're not going to know. I think it's very clear to say that he probably knew, but no one knows for certain if he did. But you'd have to be stupid to not know. Yeah. But because he never said that he knew or asked any questions, Burke and Hare aren't exactly going to know if he did know. So they just never mentioned it when they talked about the murders. Yep. Also, if anyone can hear that, it's the tour boat that goes past my flat on the canal. Uh, it's like tour boat. The trial began at 8am on Christmas Eve 1828 before the High Court of Jurisdiction in Edinburgh's Parliament House. The case was heard by the Lord Justice Clerk David Boyle, supported by the Lords Meadowbank, uh, Pitmilly and Mackenzie. The court was full shortly after the doors were opened at 9am and a large crowd gathered outside Parliament House. 300 constables were on duty to prevent disturbances, while infantry and cavalry were on standby as further precaution. They were ready for basically fucking anything. But to be fair, it's not like nowadays where if if you saw like if if anyone saw like 300 like police officers ready outside of a courthouse just in case anything kicked off, it'd be a bit like what the fuck. But I highly doubt much like crimes were going on at this point in history. As yeah. And plus, this is probably this is brand new for them. They're like, what the fuck do we do in this kind of situation? The case ran through the day and night up until the following morning. So this was like a whole twenty-four hour shit show. While when the charges were read out, the two defense counsels objected to Burke and McDougall being tried together. Burke's defense lawyer protested that his client was charged with three unconnected murders committed each at a different time and at a different place. In a trial with other defen- with another defendant who is not even alleged to have, en- have had any concern with the two offences of which he is accused. In the early afternoon, Burke and McDougall pleaded not guilty to the murder of Doherty, so they mostly focused, focused on the murder of, Do- of Doherty because that is the murder with the most witnesses and the most evidence compared to the others. Yeah. One of Knox's assistants, David Patterson, who had been the main person Burke and Hare had to deal with at Knox's surgery, was called and confirmed that the pair had supplied the doctor with several bodies. In the early evening, Hare took the stand to give evidence. Under under cross-examination about the murder of Doherty, Hare claimed Burke had been the sole murderer and McDougall had twice been involved by bringing Doherty back to the house after she had run out. Hare stated that he had assisted Burke in the delivery of the bodies to Knox. After Hare's questioning, his wife entered the witness box carrying their baby daughter who had developed whooping cough. Now, she only did this. She could have given the baby to someone else. However, she used the child's coughing fits as a way to give herself time to think for some of the questions. So she did it so she wouldn't accidentally slip up. So she had a bit of like more of a time to think while the kid was coughing. So she used a kid as a way to... A, get a bit of sympathy, and also so she didn't have to be put on the spot. Uh, She told the court that she had very poor memory and could not remember any of the events. The jury returned to the courtroom at 9.20am on Christmas Day. This is a shitty Christmas, I'm not going to lie. 
to deliver a guilty verdict against Burke for the murder of Doherty, the same charge against McDougall they found not proven. As he passed the death sentence against Burke, Boyle told him, Your body should be publicly dissected and and anatomised, and I trust that it is ever customary to preserve skeletons. Yours will be preserved in order that posture may be kept in remembrance of your atrocious crimes. So the judge is basically saying there that he wants Burke's body to be publicly dissected like he has done to all of his victims. He wants his body to be given to a university so everyone can look at the dissection like he did to his victims. But he must be on display for all time as is, as an afterlife punishment. Uh, McDougall was released at the end of the trial and returned home. If you, it's not clear already. Hare got away with it. So yeah, she was released at the end of the trial and returned home. The following day, she went to buy whiskey and was confronted by a mob who were angry at the not proven verdict. She was taken to a police building in nearby Fountain Bridge for her own protection. But after the mob laid siege to it, she escaped through a back window to the main police station off Edinburgh's High Street. She tried to see Burke, but permission was refused and she left Edinburgh the next day and there, was, there are no clear accounts of her later life. Margaret was released on the 19th of January and travelled to Glasgow to find a passage back to Ireland. Uh, while waiting for a ship, she was recognised and attacked by a mob. She was given shelter at a police station before being given a police escort onto a Belfast-bound vessel. No clear accounts exist of what became after her after she landed in Ireland. Burke was hanged on the morning of the 28th of January 1929 in front of a crowd of possibly as large as 25,000 people. 25,000 people came to watch this man die. I mean, I've I've seen um, I see I've seen memes and stuff joked now about hangings of like, oh, when your when your mom got your front row tickets to the local hanging, yay, excited! But it's such a weird thing um, just to think about the fact that um, people would genuinely turn up to watch folk die. Yep. Like now, that's a completely fucked thing. Like if it's like, oh, this person's gonna die, yeah, we want people to watch it. But twenty five thousand, twenty five thousand is a lot. It's a lot of people going out of their way in the day to be like, you know what? We are going to go and uh, watch someone get hanged today. That's what our plans for today. And it's like, what? Like 25,000 people. That's like, that's close to, that's stadium level, isn't it? Arena, 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 level, arena level? That's like a whole town. Yeah. That's a whole population. Um, like, let me have a, let me have a look. Like... Yeah. Yeah, Manchester Arena capacity for. Uh, that, that's that's more. Yeah. Than the amount of people that live in my town. Yeah, like okay, so tw- Manchester Arena holds twenty one thousand people. There's twenty. There's at least four thousand more. This man's hanging. This so basically sold out shows at the arena. He's a bit of a big deal. Twenty like when you think a sold out show at Manchester Arena, what? Blink-182 at Manchester Arena is fully sold out. 21,000 people are going to that event. There are more people watching This Man's Hanging than people will be watching Blink-182 in 2024. No, 2023, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's for the context. Whoa. Just for modern day context on that. That's nuts. A lot of people were watching from windows in the tenements overlooking the scaffold. Uh, were hired at prices ranging from fives to twenties. So people who lived in the area were renting out their windows for people to watch the hanging from. So people were making money just because that many people wanted to watch this man die. I mean, it it is just like, whoa. Yeah. Like, I uh, hangings were just hangings back then. It's just a normal thing. But it's, now that just doesn't happen. But it's always one of those things where it's like, I thought, well, I wonder what it was ever like to witness something like that. How how that's a normal occurrence for you to just be like, up, oh, hangings going on today. I think I will watch that and just watching uh, a person die. Yeah, I mean, they're evil people dying. So uh, to be fair, though, we cover a lot of people on the podcast, and we're like, oh, they so deserve to die. They so deserve to get what they got. So I think it. it I guess it adds some justification and niceness inside of you seeing this person who committed a horrible crime die and you get to see them suffer in that sense, I guess. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, on the 1st of February, Burke's body was publicly dissected by Professor Monroe, Dr. Knox's rival. Also the man they originally, that Burke originally tried to find to sell the bodies to. But he was dissected by Professor Monroe in the anatomy theatre of the university's old college. Police had to be called when large numbers of students gathered demanding access to the lecture for which a limited for which a limited number of tickets had been issued. There were the police had to be called because that many people wanted to get into this fucking lecture to see the dissection of Burke. To the point where a minor riot kicked off. Oh, wow. I predict a riot. I predict a riot. It was later restored only after one of the university professors negotiated with the crowd that they would be allowed to pass through the theatre in batches of 50 after the dissection. So, you know when the Queen died and there were fuckers queuing up on this massive queue across London just to walk past the coffin and bow or curtsy at the coffin basically fuckers were doing this in 1829 to go watch to go look at the dissect to go look at the dead body of this cunt and a riot kicked off because there wasn't a riot because of the queen but there was a riot for this fucker During the procedure, which lasted for two hours, Monroe dipped his quill pen into Burke's blood and wrote, This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Burke's skeleton was given to the Atomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School, where, as of 2022, it still remains. So if you go into the Atomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School, you can see William Burke's skeleton. 
if you want. I don't think I've been there. I've been to Edinburgh, but I have definitely not been in there, I don't think. If you want to go and look at if anyone's in Edinburgh or is going to Edinburgh at any point in time soon, or you really want to go, you can go check out William Burke's skeleton. Also, this one's a bit weirder, but apparently this was very common back in the day. His death mask and a book said to be bound with his tanned skin can also be seen at Surgeon's Hall Museum. So a book that's been made out of his skin can be seen in the museum. If you want to go check that out too. The, the, it's quite creepy, but I would like to see that. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to lie, even I would. You just want to see a book made out of flesh. That's like, yeah, whack. Yeah, it's still there. I've seen a picture of it, actually. I've seen a picture of his skeleton as well. It just kind of looks like any like skeleton that you see in a medical school, if I'm being completely honest, but it's weird knowing that that's him. Hare was released on the 5th of January, 1829. His extended stay in custody had been undertaken for his own protection and was assisted in leaving Edinburgh in disguise by the mail coach to Dumfries. He was then swapped... Uh, swarmed in Dumfries and kept in prison for his safekeeping. He was taken out of town, sent, uh, set down on the uh, Annan Road and instructed to make his way to the English border. There are no reliable sightings of him and his eventual fate is unknown. Well, he's dead, we know that, but we don't know when. Knox refused to make any public statements about his dealings with Burke and Hare. His business went downhill and he was excluded from the university. He left Edinburgh in 1842 and lectured in Britain and mainland Europe. From 1856, he worked as a pathological anatomist at the Brompton Cancer Hospital and had a medical practice in Hackney until his death in 1862. And that is the case of Birkin Hare. Bit historical this week. Not as gruesome for me. Give myself some round of applause. I didn't pick a one that makes you want to be sick or disturbs you greatly. No, but this is a, just an infamous case where I guess it's worth knowing if you're not from mm. the UK. Because it's one of those just stories that's old. Everyone kind of knows about it. Yeah. You know, part, part, part of the history now. Yeah, pretty much. You know, like, like um, there probably is the same sort of thing in other countries, some historical figures that play some true crime role or something. But, um, yeah, I do have a book that I got from someone at um, uh, work that has the uh, Birkenair story in it. So there's still people publishing it in books and retelling the tale. I mean, yeah, but like, yeah, it's known as one of the most famous murder cases in Edinburgh history because it's probably one of the oldest. Uh, yeah. Um, in terms of maybe the whole of Scotland, uh, it's Not, quite well known as well. But yeah. people know the the more recent stuff. Uh, the more recent like actual serial killers get more notoriety. But as we mentioned earlier, this one uh, is well notor- notable, uh, notorious on the fact of it's medical purposes and killing people to give bodies for science so wouldn't recommend doing that that's in this day and age that would be horrible if something like that happened in this day and age it's one of those things where 
it happened at the at the time period when it could. If that stuff had been, they, they wouldn't have done, and they wouldn't have gotten away with that or any of this nonsense later on. It's just in that time period they could do that, and it, it, um, I say benefited us. I don't know exactly what we've gotten out of that medical wise, and what the uh, university managed to progress with. But it's probably benefited us something that we take for granted now. So yeah. But yeah, guys, I hope you enjoyed this week's case. Like I said, not as gruesome, but yeah. And I hope you all re- um, saw our Instagram story the other day about why episodes have been going on a bit later. Um, poor Matt has been covering for someone who's been on holiday at work, so he has been doing a lot of night shifts where he starts when I'm when I finish work. Ironically, he starts and then I fi- he starts work and then I finish work like an hour later. So it's been yeah, I'm doing like afternoon to night. So by the time I get back from work, although I I could record an episode for you, that doesn't work. So I'm not I, you know, as we say on both parts, you got to work stuff around and you don't want to force someone to do it at a time where it feels like they're they're pressurized and stressed and everything to do it, and it's not got to be. Yeah. how they wanted it to come out that sort of thing if we were like you know if it's like do this now oh okay and then we just try and rush 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 and then out it comes and then afterwards we're like oh that 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 didn't feel good that didn't feel like we did a good job exactly i want to release good episodes for you guys but yeah thank you guys for listening to this episode next week is mike is mike why did i say mike i don't know why i said that matt's week it's matt's week next week yeah, it's me, I think. Yes, it is your week. Who's that Mike? I don't know. I don't know why I said Mike. Who's Peter, John, or Mike? I don't fucking Go live in the house of David if you like. It's Matt's week next week, so we'll see what he comes up with. But thank you guys for listening towards this episode. We thought we hope you enjoyed it. Let me have a look to see where we are in number of plays, because I like to do a little like, oh, we have reached this amount of plays. Uh, we are on 3.8k. 3.8! Whoa! Yeah, boy. So thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. And do you know what's really funny? We're on 3.8k plays, and Ian Watkins is still the most played. Damn. People will love that fucking episode. Yeah. Will that ever be topped? Who knows? Who knows? I think, think, let me see, who's right behind him on that in terms of play? Let's see. Uh, Jimmy Savile is right, of course. Right, okay. (laughs) Um, Uh. We'll see you guys next week for a new episode. Bye! Bye!